I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 24th, 2021. Coming up, we look at reasons to love cars less with CU Denver transportation scientist Wes Marshall. People's favorite neighborhoods tend to be the older streets built before the car even was invented. And if you look at the construction or the width of the street, they would be illegal today. Can't build it like that. We would need more parking. They need to be wider. But those are our favorite places. And the least favorite places people have are the ones that are built around the car. This is part two of our series on the future of cars. Many people love cars, but cars lead to crosstown traffic and highway traffic that altogether spew out one-third of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Cars also hurt the environment because they bury land under roads and parking lots. CU Denver transportation scientist Wes Marshall says these are reasons to build communities that have less dependence on cars. I do love driving. I just don't think cars and cities are compatible. We've allowed them to overrun a lot of places that should not be focused on cars. Before we speak further with Wes Marshall, let's look back in time to last week's science show. Last week's science show focused on the 1960s, when people loved cars, especially cars that go fast. We featured Boulder's Shelby American Collection Museum. It has a world-class collection of curvy little sports cars designed by Carol Shelby called Cobra Race Cars. Shelby's Cobra was so famous that it's in one of the most popular songs in the 1960s. Back in the 1960s, Shelby Race Cars won a world-renowned endurance race in France called Le Mans. In the nearly 90-year history of races at Le Mans, the winning cars have mainly had all-gas engines that sound like this 1960s Cobra. But times are changing. Last weekend, a Toyota with a combination gas and electric engine won Le Mans. Fully electric race cars are not yet at Le Mans, because the winner generally drives over 3,000 total miles. That would take a lot of charging time for an electric car, compared to the time it takes to fuel up a gas-powered car. But as electric car technology advances, a fully electric race car may be at Le Mans in two or three years. Here in Colorado, recently I met with CU Denver transportation scientist Wes Marshall. Marshall is an expert at transportation safety and ecology. He's done studies about traffic jams, about the pros and cons of Uber. He's done a lot of studies. Was Marshall bicycle to our meeting? Then we met outdoors at CU Denver's Tivoli Center. A lot of people say that cars give freedom, but they can also take it away. If we built our places so cars are only option, your freedoms are very limited. Luckily, I live in Denver here, and I live at a place where I could walk, I can bike, I bike to work today, I can take the train right in here. I have a lot of options, and I think that gives you freedom. Wes Marshall says he actually has nothing against race cars. They are marvels of engineering in their own way, so like I said, I do like to drive, just 
not in downtown Denver, for instance. I think there are better ways to get around here. But in other places, driving is the best way to get around. And that is part of this 100 plus years of cars. If you were to imagine the perfect car 30 years from now, what would you say the perfect car is? That's a tough question. I mean, probably a bicycle. (laughs) Probably a bicycle. Well, I was expecting you to say maybe a flying car that can fly over all of the traffic. The reality is over the last 100 plus years, technology has always been a panacea in transportation. Like originally cars were supposed to be the clean alternative to horses. Our cities were inundated with manure and horse carcasses and cars were the clean thing that we were bringing to this world. They were better than manure-laden streets and dead horses having to be hauled away. In some ways, they're better. Yeah, they solved that problem, but they've obviously have led us to other issues. Even today, instead of trying to solve problems like road safety, we think autonomous cars will be the answer to that. Instead of trying to solve problems with traffic congestion, flying cars might be the answer to that. With all these technologies over the last 100 years of cars, there's always been something bad that's come along with it. We thought cars are going to be this great solution 100 years ago, so we rebuilt our cities for the cars. And the cities that did that are much worse off now than the ones that stood pat the way they were built before cars existed. Look at this. We're sitting here in a Starbucks coffee outdoor place at the Devoli Center in Denver. And there are cars going by. And if you look around, there are a lot of parking lots with a lot of cars. Even though you have bike lanes, you have places that people can skateboard, there's still a lot of focus on the cars. There is, and Denver is one of those places that tore apart a lot of their downtown for parking lots, for bigger roads. And my campus here, Rary Campus, we are surrounded by some pretty big roads. We also subsidize the parking on campus here. So for a lot of people, a car is your best option to get here. You're looking kind of disgusted telling me that. (laughs) I don't think people are going to bike like I did out of the goodness of their environmental heart. We actually need to make those options a better choice, whether it's faster or cheaper or whatever it might be. You know, by subsidizing parking on campus, we are doing the opposite. We're not going to envision the perfect car for the future, although I'll bet you would say electric would be good, autonomous would be good. Definitely electric, I would say, but there's also consequences of that. A lot of our electricity production comes from coal. Let's pretend at some point it's not from coal. Let's pretend cleaner than coal. And that's definitely better. But at the same time, a lot of the consequences of cars are things that that's not going to fix. Like I show in my class this picture of a highway that is just filled with traffic. It stopped. This is today. And then I show almost the same picture like this is with electric cars and almost the same picture like this is with autonomous cars. Like a lot of those things don't get fixed. At least we could sleep if we had autonomous (laughs) cars. If we're in a traffic jam, we could take a nap. We could watch a movie. Even that's tricky. I think with technologies like this, we become complacent. When Google got their autonomous cars to the point where they thought they could let their employees test them, they put an email out to the Google headquarters that he wants to take this home for a weekend. By the way, yes, it is autonomous, but you have to be paying attention all the time. What they didn't tell the employees is that they had cameras in the car to see what people would do. People were taking naps, people were putting on makeup, people were like leaning into the backseat to eat food. And that's when Google realized there is sort of no in between. Like it has to be all autonomous or nothing. I want the all autonomous. I want the all. But that's a tricky engineering problem. Companies like Tesla call their car self-driving or autonomous, but it's not there. 
the result could be less safety. Um, I remember one of my neighbors, when he first got one of the cars that tells you if there's a car in your blind spot on the highway, so if you're going to change lanes, the car will warn you. So he was just changing lanes willy-nilly all over the highway without ever looking. To test it partly, um, or just because well, he, he just, believed it. He believed that that was going to just give him the answer, and hopefully it does. We get better safety when we add the technology on top of what we already do. So if he looked over his shoulder and used the mirror and used that technology, we're safer. We're not going to do that. You think you might be safer with some of these technologies, but if you sort of stop paying attention, sometimes it doesn't lead to better safety. That's disappointing. I had thought that the big challenge with an entirely autonomous car is it would really mess up the ability of movies to have chase scenes with cars. (laughs) Yes, it would definitely ruin the movies. There's a lot of good car chases in movies. You have some interesting studies you've done to show how many times a good idea about cars ends up being not as good as people think. Take Uber. Did it really reduce the number of car hours on the road? The founders of Uber and Lyft and companies like that, they really talked a good game. They looked at our transportation system and saw that the most underutilized resource we had was the empty seats in a car because most people are driving by themselves and there's two, three empty seats in there, sometimes four or five. So they wanted to fill that up. That's a great idea, but the way it actually came to fruition, it functions sort of more like a taxi. So if I need to get picked up here on campus, that Uber driver is going to come from somewhere else, drive over here, bring me to wherever I need to go, and then drive off to the next person. Well, that's right. Your data. You gathered some data here in Denver, and it was a little depressing for people who wanted to see Uber be a way to reduce car traffic. When we did the math, it was 70% more vehicle miles traveled than if Uber did not exist. People who would have bicycled, people who would have taken a train, with Uber around, they said, yeah, let's do the easier thing. Yeah, it, it was replacing some car trips, but at the same time, it was replacing what could have been a bus trip or a train trip or walking or biking. I just want to give credit to my student that collected this data, Alejandro Hanau, because he actually had to drive for Uber and Lyft to do it because those companies aren't all that good at sharing data. So we actually had to put him in a car, and hundreds of rides later, we had a good data set. That's very sneaky. <laughs> um, that's just uh, what we had to do. And it was an interesting question for us. Like, what are really the transportation impacts of these things? But, I mean, at the same time, one of the good things we found is that you could probably put less parking in a place because you don't need as much parking because of Uber and Lyft, and then people want to use as much. I'm looking out here at the Auraria campus. There is a lot of space devoted to having a place for a car. There is, and it was actually a lot worse when I first got here in 2009. Um, if you go out to Spear Boulevard out here, the first building that's right on Spear used to be just the surface parking lot. It seems silly to allow a car to take up 50 square feet. We do love our cars. We do. Your research has uncovered some other things about how to switch from a car culture. One example that was interesting to me is how do you make it safe for bicyclists? For the last 20, 30 years, traffic engineers have thought the safest way for a bike to be in a transportation system was to sort of act like a car. This lane, I am in, I am going to be treated like a car. I'm in the middle of the lane. You can't pass me. I'm a car, even though you're a bicycle. Yes, exactly. And I was looking into sort of the original studies that led us to sort of that conclusion, and they are deeply flawed. It was really just one guy out in Palo Alto. Palo Alto. Yes. He spent most of his life riding the street. He spent one day trying to ride on the paths, and he tried to ride at the same speed he normally would, and he saw he had like seven sort of near misses. Then he calculated that it was a thousand times less safe, and that singular study and the work he did after led us to do this for 20 years. 
Now we're sort of realizing, well, no, if we actually keep bicyclists or even pedestrians away from the cars, they're safer. I mean, it seems logical, but it's a while to get there. It does seem logical. Most people beginning to bicycle, if they're on a busy street, they'll stay to the side of the street so that the cars can go by them. If you're a pedestrian, you'll stay off the middle of the street. You'll find a sidewalk, or if you can't find a sidewalk, you'll be in the gutter someplace where you're away from the cars. That just seems logical, but... That's not what the science initially said because it was too small and too stupid a study. I mean, what do we say there? It was just anecdotal information, really, um, when you look into it. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We're talking with CU Denver transportation scientist Wes Marshall about crosstown traffic, highway traffic, and why he says it's more dangerous for a bicycle to go down the middle of a street as if it's a car. Marshall says it's safer for a bicyclist to stick with the side of a road or be on a designated non-motor vehicle path. Best of all, Marshall says, do not build a community's roads mainly for cars. Build the roads and sidewalks for people out on a walk or out on a bicycle. Here's CU Denver transportation engineer, Wes Marshall. I think the best thing what we're finding now in my research of late is that when we build the city to make it safer for bicyclists or pedestrians, it's not just safer for them, but it's safer for everybody. Like, those cities are killing fewer drivers and car occupants as well. And so you have places like Boulder, and Denver a little bit, but Boulder especially, where there really are a lot of multi-use paths, so that somebody can bicycle from any part of town to the middle of town, really without ever having to cross a busy street. There are some dedicated bike lanes on the streets that are only for bicycles, But most of it is these paths that are kind of like the arteries in our body. Car arteries are one place. The bicycle arteries get to go under the streets. It's really lovely. And you have a few of those here in Denver, too. And we're getting more of them. And if you look at Boulder's numbers, their road fatality rate is much lower than the U.S. average. It is better at the same time. When I'm ever in Boulder, it feels like a tale of two cities. Like there is a really nice sort of bike city sort of underneath the city and then you know, for drivers, there's a really nice driving city above it, too. So it's an interesting dichotomy up there. But if you have to be on the street in Boulder with a bicycle, it's a little more dicey. It is dicey compared to what people want and expect in Boulder, but at the same time, it's much better than most of the country. What you've seen is that some old-fashioned ways to build a city are also really good for reasonable use of cars, for reasonable use of bicycles, like an old-fashioned city with lots of trees on the street and sidewalks and these little grids no cul-de-sacs, just grid after grid of different streets crisscrossing each other for busy neighborhoods, quiet neighborhoods, but you can choose which one you drive on. Well, if you go to any American city, people's favorite neighborhoods tend to be the older streets built before the car even was invented. And if you look at the construction or the width of the street, they would be illegal today. Can't build it like that. We would need more parking. They need to be wider. But those are our favorite places. And the least favorite places people have are the ones that are built around the car. So what we did 200 years ago still works today. The type of cities we built, the networks, those are the places that still work and they will continue to work into the future. Because those are places where people felt comfortable getting out and just walking or they went out with some simpler kind of transportation than a car and it wasn't dominated by the car. I think that's the fundamentals of any city is building it around the walking, the biking, making it safe for kids, making it accessible for people with disabilities. Instead of trying to adapt our cities to these autonomous cars, 
the autonomous cars need to adapt to our good places. What if we just all had little teeny tiny cars? Just one person, you know, here it's Colorado, gets cold in the winter, so you need to have, what was it, the Sparrow? The Sparrow car a few years back that was an electric car that had one wheel in the front, two wheels in the back. It basically was a three-wheeled bicycle with a shell on it. Yeah, but I don't think that's going to happen. If you look at the way our cars have been growing over the last 20 years, like the same pickup truck 20 years ago is a fraction of the size of the same model pickup truck today. They do seem bigger. They're definitely bigger. They're definitely heavier, especially if we go towards electric vehicles, they'll be even heavier because batteries are much heavier than conventional cars. And there are actually safety implications to that. So if a pedestrian gets hit in a heavier car, they're more likely to die. Or if a car hit something else there's more weight to slow down and sort of the force equation mass times acceleration and mass is a big part of it i want to get back to this idea of old-fashioned cities with these grids where they didn't focus on cars there is a move afoot and joe biden our president is part of this to say what are we doing making highways go through the middle of cities why can't we just have regular gridded streets and just leave it at that This actually was my dissertation work, you know, more than 10 years ago. A lot of people want to live on a cul-de-sac, and the thinking is, it's safer. Whenever I was in a place like that, I felt trapped. My only choice of leaving that place was in a car. So my dissertation looked at, well, is it actually safer? And what I found is, yes, it's safer if you never leave the cul-de-sac. The more compact, denser, gridded networks, all other things being equal, they had a few more fender benders, but two or three times fewer fatal and severe injuries on the road. In the ones without the cul-de-sacs. Yeah. Usually what happens is if we have a network design based on a lot of cul-de-sacs, we end up building these huge arterial roads around it. It was those places where we were getting a lot of deaths on the road. So those cities as a whole were killing a lot more people than the gridded cities. So I think people look at grids and say, oh, well, that's not safe. There's going to be crashes all over the place. And I think it was 7% more fender benders, but a lot fewer fatal and severe crashes. Yeah, don't people go slower if they they have to go in grids? That's, I think, what was underlying the data. When your intersections are spaced closer together, people are meandering through the network as opposed to driving at 50 miles an hour to a red light, waiting for 90 seconds, and then driving another 50 miles an hour to the next light. What we did in our cities back in the 50s and 60s was tear up those grids to replace them with bigger highways and even interstates right through the cities. So we were supposed to have a way to zip through the city because American productivity depends on not having traffic jams. Or actually, your research shows that's not true. A lot of my research comes from the idea of what bothers me. And one of the things at the time was, you know, people saying, well, if we don't fix this traffic congestion, it's going to kill the economy. When I looked around at all our best cities, they were the ones with the most traffic congestion. It seemed like they sort of go hand in hand. We looked at years and years of data for a hundred of the biggest metropolitan areas, and traffic congestion didn't lead to a worse economy. In fact, what we're finding, it seemed to lead to a better economy. Now, just a second here. So you're saying traffic congestion, traffic jams, leads to a better economy, Um, you're going to have to persuade me. If you build your city and you build your roads so big and wide and with so many lanes that you have reduced traffic congestion, that's a bigger problem than the opposite. You basically have 
outbuilt the types of things that brings people to your city. I hate picking on Detroit, but they built so many highways and so many parking garages to the point where they had no more traffic congestion, but it was because nobody was coming to their city anymore. Let's choose a more politically correct example then. (laughs) San Francisco, Oakland, these are places filled with highways that crisscross like spaghetti. Do you think it works? Well, if you look at San Francisco, they fought the freeways. If you look at the original plan for San Francisco, there was this big grid of freeways. They fought off most of them. There were a few in the city. And then, you know, back with the earthquake in 1989 during the Major League Baseball World Series, it destroyed one of the freeways. Advocates for years have been saying, we need to take this freeway down. It's not really helping anybody. But the traffic engineer said, well, we can't because there's going to be a traffic Armageddon. After the earthquake hit, they realized there wasn't a traffic Armageddon. Like, San Francisco is a place where you have other options to get around. They're able to take down the freeway, and San Francisco is better for it, especially around the areas where those freeways used to be. Well, I stand corrected. So San Francisco used to have a lot more freeways. Yeah, so the Embarcadero is one of the examples, and they turned it into a boulevard. And instead of this overhead freeway shadowing the neighborhood... There's a boulevard with trees and bike lanes, and it's a much different place. You envision a world where we get back to a grid system, so we have neighborhoods that can blend into downtowns. Well, what I think our highways should do as they come to cities is change in their character. So instead of trying to shove our highways through the cities, we want them to sort of become a boulevard. We want cars to slow down and take a look at our city, maybe even stop and grab a cup of coffee or something, instead of blowing through our cities getting to the other side. Is Denver doing this? Is Boulder doing this? Denver had their opportunity with I-70, but instead we made it even bigger. You're sneering. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) That's a lost opportunity from your perspective. I think it is a lost opportunity. It's going to be better than it was, because I've I've been to Dallas, and I, I saw what they did where they put a park over their freeway. It is an amazing park, but it's still like a 16-lane freeway underneath it with these big frontage roads that are four lanes wide on the other side of the park. There's still an opportunity for it to be even better. Washington, D.C. So I think U.S. 50 is a highway outside of D.C. And as it gets closer and closer to D.C., it transforms into like a bigger road. And then once it gets in D.C., it transforms into a boulevard. And then it leaves D.C. and it goes back to being a highway. That's the sort of thing that could work in a city. And you can dissipate a lot of the traffic through the grid. But even some of these boulevards can hold 30,000-plus cars per day. So it's not insignificant. We had to stay home this last year. A lot of people who worked in offices had to stay home. Is there something to learn from that? Is there something to keep doing? Or is it better to get people back into the offices from a transportation standpoint? Depends. I mean, reducing the number of trips you have to make as a human being reduces your exposure and chance of getting hurt or dying on the roads. At the same time, there are benefits to humans getting together. You and I are talking here in person, and there are things we can learn from each other that are harder to get over a Zoom call. And that might lead to something in the future that is beneficial for everybody. Are you tired of Zooms? I am completely Zoomed out. We don't know what's going to happen with transportation, but you like the idea of having cars be less of a focus. You still want a place to park them, though, don't you? Well, sure. Cars are still going to be important, and but we've been prioritizing them for the last 100 years to the detriment of our other good options. 
I mean, it comes down to sort of building good places, and that will take care of a lot of the problems, and then people will decide what works best for them in those places. And if we give them two options to walk and bike, people will start to realize that it might be a better choice for them. First time I lived in a place where you really couldn't leave the street without being in a car, my neighbors had no idea what they were missing, and they had no idea what their kids were missing or the fact that they were chauffeuring their kids all over town when people in other places can let their kids bike to their friend's house. And that's what I think building good places can sort of lead to. All the benefits that we're being told are going to come with autonomous cars will only come when every car is autonomous. If you have one human driver mixed in among it all, it throws a monkey wrench in a lot of it. So your neighbor who has the 1967 Mustang, that would be a problem? Well, if he's driving in a fully autonomous network, but so would a single pedestrian. One person crossing the street in a fully autonomous network, how does it work? I mean, are we going to design these cars so they stop for the pedestrian? Would think I, I would like them to. You know, even if they're jaywalking, I want the car to stop, please. And then are we going to have high school kids bullying cars because they know all these autonomous cars are going to stop? Oh, so it's kind of a prankster thing then. It hasn't happened yet, but we'll see. If we design them all so they do stop for pedestrians, I could walk out with my eyes closed and part the sea like Moses. So I hear you saying again that what you would rather do is encouraging an environment where the cars just aren't as important. Yeah, and I think it depends on the context. So, I mean, obviously in the middle of nowhere where it's the highway, that's not going to be the priority there. But in a Kansas, for instance, you need cars in Kansas. A lot of places you need cars. America is spread out in a lot of places, but in places where we do have more compact places, it doesn't make sense to prioritize cars there. This concludes part two of our series on the future of cars. We've been speaking with CU Denver transportation engineer Wes Marshall. Marshall is an expert in transportation safety. He believes our communities would be better off if we designed them for people walking and people on bicycles and much, much less for cars. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Hey Little Cobra and also from Crosstown Traffic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>